All right, so we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have been for several weeks, and we will be for several more weeks, and we have this little sentence that we have been learning throughout every sermon, and this week, I'm not going to give you any hints, no hints, so you're going to have to repeat together, I know, I know, I'll give you the first word, wisdom, is correctly applied biblical knowledge. All right, let's try again. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Excellent. Um, I have to tell you that one of the challenges that I face with doing a sermon series through Ecclesiastes, for example, is um, sometimes it can be repetitive Sometimes it can be a bit depressing, and sometimes it can be a bit um, challenging even to understand what Solomon is writing. And oftentimes, and not, I shouldn't say oftentimes, sometimes I have um, people after a sermon series is over, for example, or we're in the middle of a sermon series, and they come to me and say, Tim, I don't know why you're doing this series. Um, I don't know why you're doing this series. I don't know why you're doing this series. Um, you know, just stick to big, fancy, beautiful portions of scriptures. You're choosing some obscure things, like the book of Judges. Um, that was repetitive. Uh, and you're choosing Ecclesiastes. It, it feels like uh, there's other books that you could be doing besides some of the ones that you're choosing. And um, the conversation always goes real well. Uh, but I, I think about it not as a criticism. That's not why the person is doing it or the people do it. Uh, they have a genuine interest and they go, you know, the book of John would be so much better than the book of Ecclesiastes. And I have to catch myself because all of God's word is inspired by him. Every verse Every chapter, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter if it's confusing or if it's crystal clear. Every bit of scripture is breathed by God and has authority. It has life. It cuts to the very issue of things. It encourages, it corrects. It tells us grand things about the nature of God and it humbles us before the throne and it creates in us a sense of need for God's grace. Every bit of scripture, even the repetitive parts of scripture. And I always try to ask that question of people who say, oh, you know what, this is kind of repetitive. The book of Judges is kind of repetitive. The book of Ecclesiastes feels a little repetitive. And there's a reason behind it. God designed his word perfectly so that when it is repetitive, it is because we are so prone to forget. And so he has to repeat it over and over and over and over so that it would finally one day sink into our hardened hearts and our thick skulls and our attitude of, hey, we know it all. And it humbles us so that we would remember that when we leave this enclosed safe, comfortable place of worship and gathering of God's people, and we engage in the world that is hostile towards the gospel, 
hates the name of Christ, wants to earn their salvation, wants nothing to do with grace. They want to hold a grudge and never forgive. They want to be angry and hateful before they are forgiving and loving biblically. That we are aware that when we engage with the world and they have no concept of God's grace in their life, they are exactly the kind of person that Ecclesiastes says lives a life of repetitive, failing, vanity, and meaninglessness. And when we realize that a world without Christ or a person without Christ has at the very heart of their life unhappiness, unfulfilled, with no hope, amazingly, that can immediately change us into having compassion for them, tenderness towards them, patience towards them, mercy towards them. And if it feels repetitive, if it feels even somewhat depressing, that story of meaningless and vanity and, and all is hopeless without God, good for us because it is instructing us how to engage with a world that doesn't care about Christ. They'll celebrate Christmas because there's presidents and a day, uh, presents and a day off. But they won't celebrate it because our Savior was born, humbled himself, and became like us to be a substitute for us on the cross. And the more we can be reminded of what they are like in their heart, the more we can approach them and love them and minister to them. So I don't apologize for the scripture being repetitive. I don't apologize it for it's somewhat, somewhat depressive at times. I celebrate the fact that God is trying to put something into our mind and make sure that we never forget it. So we're going to approach Ecclesiastes in that same way we have from very first verse of chapter 1, but we're actually in chapter 6, and we are going to remind ourselves that Solomon is instructing us regarding what a life without God looks like. What a life without God looks like. And it is indeed depressing, repetitive, meaningless, without hope, without God, desperate. In the first two verses of chapter 6, he's telling us that the ultimate gift from God is not wealth. We would think that the best gift that we could ever be given would be wealth untold. But the best and ultimate gift from God is not wealth, but it's to enjoy life with or without. Look at how he says that in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. How serious and somber that verse is. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, has viewed life from every angle as a son, as a father, as a king, as a husband, and he has seen from his great wealth how mankind lives. He's met the elite of the elite, the world's richest of the world's riches. He's enjoyed everything you can possibly imagine was available to him. And he says, there is a sorrow, a sadness, an evil, a wickedness that I've seen that I've experienced, that I've noticed. And it is a burden to the person without God. You know what the burden is? He tells us in verse 2, 
a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all his desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it is a grievous evil and wickedness. This is the burden of mankind. Without God, God gives and blesses them. God has always given and blessed, even those who don't deserve it from our perspective. But the person who has an excessive amount of stuff and they have no relationship with God, they don't enjoy it. And in the end, some stranger gets it and enjoys it. They don't. And Solomon looks at that and says, do you not see how amazingly good God is in giving you everything you can possibly imagine, want, and desire? And you don't acknowledge him as the giver. You don't acknowledge him as the one who provides for you. Instead, it's all fleeting. It's all meaningless. It's all vanity. You miss out on it completely. And in Proverbs chapter 3, we have these verses that reiterate the same thing. He says in chapter 3 of Proverbs, starting in verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. That means happy. Happy is the person who can correctly apply biblical knowledge, who understands that, sees it, and feels it. Happy is the person not who has wealth. Happy is the person who doesn't have wealth, but happy is the person who has wisdom who knows how to take God's word and apply it to their lives, understanding the relationship between creator and creature, God and, and servant. Happy, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. How can wisdom be better than gold and silver? Because gold and silver... They don't satisfy like God does. They don't. They don't satisfy. They don't reach to that innermost being of who we are and what we need. We don't need wealth. We don't need stuff. What we need is God interacting in our lives as our heavenly father and us as his adopted children, fully blooded by the sacrifice of Christ and cleansed. That's what we need, and when we have that, it is far better than wealth. And before you say, oh, Tim, that's easy for you to say, you're wealthy. This is where we're supposed to laugh a little bit and chuckle, <laughs> all right? It is easy for me to say, because I've known what it's like to be with plenty and with nothing. And God is still my loving Father who has promised I will never be able to jump out of or be taken out of his hands. That is security. Gold and silver, there's no security in that. There is earthly comfort, but there's no, no heavenly satisfaction in that. Continuing in, in, in chapter 3 of Proverbs real quick, I got sidetracked there. Uh, the gain from her, which is wisdom, is better than silver. Her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
How many of you have desired more money? I'll put my hand up. Wow, like five of us? Really? I thought this was a thing that happened to all humankind. Who's wanted a different car? A better car, let me say, okay? Who's wanted a better house? Who's wanted servants to take care of every one of your needs? And I'm not talking children. How many of you have cried out to God, Lord, grant me more wisdom. Grant me a better understanding of you before wishing and dreaming of winning the lottery. I imagine more of us have thought about what it would be like if we were that and had that and had this and had that. I bet we've done more of that than we've beseeched God Draw me closer to a better understanding of you and how to apply your word in my life. The writer of Proverbs here, which could be Solomon at this point, says it is far better, nothing can be compared to wisdom. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who hold of her. And those who hold her fast are called blessed, happy. So here is a beautiful point of application. If you find yourself unhappy, unhappy with your job, unhappy with where you live, unhappy with who you live with, unhappy with the stuff you have or don't have, if you are unhappy with your lot in life, then my encouragement to you is not to strive after something different and more of that stuff. Because more and different is not going to satisfy you. What's going to satisfy you is being in front of God, humbly praying and bowing before him, submitting to him, honoring him, loving him above all the other things that life says you must have. And you will be blessed. You may not have an easy time of life. You may not. You may not get to vacation and do all those things that media and the rich of the rich show themselves to do, but you will, you will be at peace. Something that far escapes all of those who live a life without God. They have no peace of soul. There there is a book, and I'm getting sidetracked here, but there is a book called Uh, Last Words, and this book uh, chronicles for history the last words of saints and sinners. In fact, I think that might be the title, The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. And it goes through historically about uh, the dying words of people on their deathbed. And some of them are famous people, some of them are just known to church history or or very small segments, but the, the book was written on purpose to show the difference between the person without God who dies, and the person with God who dies. And it is remarkably just striking how different it is between those two types of people. And I have witnessed, I have witnessed saints who have walked with God every day of their life, who are dependent upon him, who are exactly what Solomon says brings peace and happiness. They love God. 
and God loves them and their lives are totally redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and they are comforted in that moment where they take their last, last breath. There's joy in their heart and in their soul. And I have one time or two times been in a hospital room, an ER room, where the person who died did not know Christ and didn't want to know anything about Christ. The family was so full of pain and anger that I, I was shocked they wanted me to pray. I said, what, what do we, I mean, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I'm like, well, what do you want me to pray for? What do you want me to, who do you want me to pray to? Because you don't believe in God. Oh, but a pastor needs to be here to pray. So I prayed. It was the most, it was sad. It was sad to see someone pass into eternity that did not want to hear the gospel and to be surrounded by their family who had no hope or peace. It was terrifying. That person outside of God's miraculous moment, maybe in the words that I shared, is damned to suffer the pains of hell forever without hope, without peace. I've seen life leave that body. And they're not entering into a better place where there's no pain, no suffering, no fear, no worry. They're entering into terror. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3 through 9, we have a section here about ultimately time doesn't wait for anyone. Time waits for no one. And, uh, well, let me, let me just read here. Uh, starting in verse 3 all the way to verse 9. If a man fathers a hundred children and li lives many years. Oh, by the way, Solomon fathered many more than 100 children, so maybe some of this is biographical for him. If a man fathers 100 children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered, which means forgotten. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes that than the better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. When you boil that down. What Solomon is ultimately getting after is you can have a life filled with stuff. Hundreds of kids, you can live 2,000 years, you can enjoy everything that life has to offer that you can afford, and if you do not, if you are not satisfied in the goodness of what God gives, 
It is better if you were a stillborn child so that you never experienced that terror and that lack of peace and joy in your life. How does Solomon get to that conclusion that it'd be better to be born dead than to live thousands of years with everything you could possibly want? Because you are missing something fundamentally necessary for peace, for hope, for enjoying the things of life, for enjoying it. Because if you do not acknowledge God for what you have, then you have nothing if you don't have God as the focus of who gives you all things. So it'd be better off that you didn't even live. Harsh, strange, I know it's not something that you'd think, oh, I'm going to go to Sunday uh, church this morning and I'm going to hear about how better off it would be if you were never born. But Solomon is spot on right. You could live lives over and over and over, but if you do not have him, everything is unsatisfying. You'll always want something bigger and better. You always want a better job. You always want better stuff. You always want better vacations. You always want better, better, better. And you'll never have it because joy and peace and comfort and satisfaction in life does not come from stuff. It comes from God. And there's a world out there that totally disagrees. There's a world out there that says, oh no, if I just had a better job, if I just had more respect, if I had more honor from people, if I was the one in charge, if I had this, if I had this, 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 my life would be so much better. The problem, the problem with this, 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 and this, and if you had this, if you moved there, if you got that job, if you became the boss, the problem is, is you always bring yourself along. The problem is not you don't have the right job. The problem is you don't have the right family. The problem is you don't have the right stuff. The problem is you don't live in the right spot. The problem is you. You're the source of unhappiness. You're the source of discontentment. You are the source of the lack of peace, the lack of joy, and the lack of love. No one else or nothing else is responsible. You are 100% responsible. And Solomon says, it's far better if you don't even experience that, then to experience it and not have joy and peace and a relationship with God as your father. Warren Wearsby, who many, many, many years ago, uh, fantastic pastor and commentary uh, writer, said, what good is it to add years to your life if you do not have life in your years. What good is it to add years to your life if you do not have life in your years? And of course, he's speaking from a biblical perspective. It doesn't matter if your life is short. If you have God, it's a happy, satisfied, complete life. If your life is long with all the stuff you could imagine you'd ever want, but you have no God, then your life in the end if you're honest with yourself, is unsatisfying, desperate, disappointing. You are always missing something. And what you're missing 
is God. And there's a world out there that has it totally reversed. There's a world out there that says, if I just had a better job, if I just was the one in charge, if I just had more stuff, if I just lived there, if I just did this, 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 I'd be satisfied. That is a lie. That is a lie. Because God says, if you have me, you have everything you possibly need. Christ says, I am the all in all. Paul points us to the fullness and satisfaction of Christ at every step, every page, every verse he writes. It is just soaking with that truth that in Christ I have all that I need. But we are so prone to listen to the world and be distracted by the blingy, fancy stuff that we start to lie to ourselves. If I only had that, I'd be happy. If I only had that, I'd get serious with God. If I only had that job, oh, and, and all of a sudden we just fall into that trap of happiness is tied to what we have instead of happiness is tied to who we have. And we have Christ. And he finishes in... Um, the last two verses here in Ecclesiastes, last three verses, verses 10 through 12, he says, whatever has come, whatever has come to be has already been named. And what is known, what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of this vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He moves into this repetitive cycle of it doesn't matter. It's all been done. It's all been said. People have pursued wealth. People have pursued uh, leisure time. People have pursued relationships. People have pursued knowledge. People have pursued education. People have pursued power and status. People have pursued all that. And where does it end up? Vanity. Nothing. Nothing is able to satisfy. Listen to how he says that. And let me go a little bit slower in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. So again, there's nothing new under the sun. People have been playing the same thing with I feel value by social media, not because of social media today, but they have always felt value by what other people are saying about them, how they like them, how they appreciate them, how they applaud them for their accomplishments of standing in line for five minutes to get at the new Starbucks drink. Whatever it might be back a thousand years ago, they've all desired to be the center of attention and to be acknowledged as greater than they are. That's the sin nature of man. They've always desired that, attention and importance and power. So there's nothing new that can be named. It's known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. In the end, in the end, while we may be able to achieve places and positions of power here among ourselves over each other, positions of envy and jealousy over others. There is one person 
that we will never outsmart, ever outdo, ever outperform, ever outhave. And that is God. It would be a very poor religion if Christianity could attain for themselves God status. That's a religion of humanity, not a religion of divinity. That's man-centered theology, not God-centered theology. And I want to leave us with one thing to leave us with today. And I've said it several different ways in this message on purpose so that it is repetitive and it's drilled into our heart and our mind. If you are unsatisfied with what you have, where you are at in life, if you are unsatisfied with that and you dream of more and bigger and more and bigger and more and bigger, if that is the constant thought on your mind, how life would be so much better if, and then you fill in the blank, if you're caught in that trap, the answer is not more or different stuff. The answer is rightly acknowledging the giver of all things. If you are satisfied with him, then you will never dream or wish or hope or argue for more. God gives as he gives. God gives as he desires. And why you don't have what that person has should never be a matter of satisfaction, hope, and joy. Because what God has given you as one of his children is worth so much more eternally than all the wealth of this world. And there is nowhere that that is so perfectly seen touched and tasted than in the Lord's table. He shows us exactly what he's willing to give his children, the life of his son to redeem us from the cycle of vanity and uselessness of stuff. And just so you think, or just so you don't think, or assume uh, Tim is against having stuff, Tim is not against having stuff because God is not against having stuff. It is okay to have wealth. It is okay to have ease of life. God gives us both the trials of life and the ease of life. He gives us both. But what he's given us most of that should be our attention grabber is the life of his son on our behalf. So I'm going to ask that the elders come up and you're going to stay seated, and we're going to pass it down the aisles, and then we're going to hold on to the bread together, and we're going to bless it and take it together, and then we're going to take the cup together at the same time.